Welcome back to our study of the book of 1 Kings. We're going to finish up chapter 2 finally. It's a, a long chapter, but a lot happens. And so we've been taking our time through here. Remember that at the beginning of chapter 2, David spoke with Solomon and gave him some parting words. Most importantly, and primarily about listening to the Lord and obeying His Word, but also about dealing with some issues that uh, David left, sort of some loose ends David had left um, at the end of his reign and the end of his life that Solomon needed to deal with. And so here at the end of chapter 2, we're going to see how Solomon dealt with those. Uh, in particular, David told Solomon he needed, he needed to deal with Joab, who had been the commander of David's army, but had committed murder, um, killed some men unlawfully outside of war, and uh, also with a man named Shimei, who had cursed David, and whom David had shown mercy, uh, but who um, needed to be dealt with. So, um, so far in chapter 2, Solomon has put to death his brother Adonijah, who had tried to take the throne for himself. Solomon gave him a chance to do what was right, but by asking for uh, Abishag the Shunammite, who had been given to David as a, a sort of companion in his old age, um, Solomon saw that as a, a play for the throne, and so Solomon had Adonijah executed. Um, he also expelled Abiathar, the priest who had been priest under David, and uh, had supported Adonijah. And so he, uh, Abiathar was not put to death, but he was, in a sense, exiled. He was removed from the priesthood. And uh, now in uh, the last several verses, verses 28 to 46, we will see how Joab deals with, uh, excuse me, how Solomon deals with Joab and Adonijah who David had given him specific instructions about. So let's start with verse 28. Uh, it says, When the news came to Joab, that is the news of Adonijah's death and of Abiathar being removed from the priesthood, when the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon... Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he has said. Strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and struck him down and put him to death. 
and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. So when Joab hears what happened to Adonijah, who Joab had supported as king, and also to Abiathar, who had been with Joab in support of Adonijah, uh, Joab knows what's coming. Uh, and Joab knows what Solomon is likely to do next. And so Joab uh, flees to the tent of the Lord. Now, of course, uh, the tent they're talking about here is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Solomon is the one who will build the temple that David had wanted to build, but God said it was not for David to do, but for um, his son to do. So Solomon is going to build the temple, but as of this point in Israel's history, there's no temple yet. There's the tent, the tabernacle. And so that's where Joab flees, and he takes hold of the horns of the altar. Now, that worked for Adonijah. Earlier in chapter 2, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 1, Adonijah, when Solomon had been anointed king, Adonijah fled to uh, the tent and took hold of the altar because uh, Adonijah had tried to take the throne and he knew now that Solomon had been installed as king by David himself that Adonijah was in trouble because he obviously had set himself up as a rival. At that point, uh, Solomon spared him for a time, but as we said earlier, uh, he ended up being put to death uh, because of his request about Abishag. So Joab tries the same thing. He flees to the tent and he takes hold of the horns of the altar. And uh, Solomon hears what Joab has done and um, he gives the order to strike him down. Uh, so Benaiah came to Solomon in verse 30. Uh, so not to Solomon, to uh, Joab. And he said, the king commands come out. Joab says, no, I'll die here. So Benaiah uh, brings word back to the king. Joab refuses to leave. You know, what should I do? And so the king says, do as he has said, strike him down and bury him. And then this is why this has to be done. Thus, take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. So Joab was the commander of the army under David, and so uh, Joab's actions uh, reflected on and even had consequences for David's kingdom, David's house. And Joab did wicked deeds that David uh, did not know about, did not endorse, and uh, so those deeds need to be dealt with so that the consequences don't come upon Solomon and his house and his kingdom as a continuation of David's kingdom. And so he says, you got to kill Joab so that the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause will be taken away from me and from my father's house. Uh, he, he goes on to say in verse 32, the Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than he better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. Um, you can read both of those stories. Uh, I think they're both in 2 Samuel. Yeah, both in 2 Samuel, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you can read the, the back stories there. But in both cases, Solomon says he killed someone whom he shouldn't have killed, 
right? And um, I think David said earlier, um, yeah, David said earlier back in verse 5, he said um, that Joab, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war. Right, so um, again, these were unlawful executions. That it was murder that Joab committed. David did not deal with it in his own lifetime, but he told Solomon, "You're going to have to deal with it." Um, and uh, so these two deaths and the guilt that they brought upon uh, David's house as a result of them being um, the, them being the result of of uh, Joab's actions, who was under the authority of David, uh, David says that, that we've got to take care of this, right? So um, they do that. Verse 33 says, So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. So we've got to do this so that the guilt for that blood being shed unlawfully doesn't hang over the house of David and the kingdom that God has established through David and through Solomon. The the kingdom as it's being established in Solomon's day under Solomon's reign needs to be be established on a just and lawful footing and the guilt remaining from David's days that hasn't been dealt with yet needs to be dealt with. That's why this has to happen to Joab. Um, so verse 34 says that Benaiah did that. He uh, struck down Joab and put him to death. And Joab was buried. And then verse 35 says that Benaiah uh, is the one that King Solomon put over the army in place of Joab. So Joab had been the commander of the army. Now Benaiah is the commander of the army. And the king put Zadok the priest, it says, in the place of Abiathar. So both of those roles that have now been vacated, one through exile, one through execution, uh, they have been filled by the men who will now uh, hold those offices under King Solomon. Now, um, what are we to make of this? Right? Again, th- these are things that we're not um, used to. We, Thankfully, we live in a democracy. We um, get to see the peaceful passing of power from one party to another uh, after an election, those kind of things. Um, but this was, I mean, obviously this was common um, in earlier times when, especially with monarchies, when any uh, potential rival, um, even if it meant a sibling, could be executed and, um, and done away with in order to secure the reign of the person who was on the throne. But in this instance, there is a particular um, emphasis not simply on security, not, this is not done simply to remove threats um, in this case with, with Joab. It's not about Joab being a threat per se to the, it's not at all about him being a threat to the throne, but it is about his guilt um, and his unlawful shedding of blood being an issue for the kingdom that needs to be dealt with so the kingdom can be established on a, on a righteous Footing. So when we, um, what, you, what do we do with that? Well, think about it's it's not the not the same, but there is a connection here to when Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth in fulfillment of these promises to David about a son who would reign on his throne forever. 
In a similar way, there was guilt that needed to be dealt with. Romans 3, 25 and 26 talks about how God had overlooked former sins. Um, They're probably referring to uh, those Old Testament saints who have been welcomed into uh, the kingdom of God, so to speak, um, upon their death. Uh, Their sin had not been truly atoned for since the blood of bulls and goats. It was not possible for that to take away sin. And so... uh, and also, those who would believe in Jesus, who would be welcomed into his kingdom, uh, also had sin that had to be dealt with. So, what did God do? Well, God put forward his son as a propitiation, Romans 3 says, a, a sacrifice to bear the punishment, bear the wrath deserved um, by sinners who had sinned against God, so that... God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, so that God could do what is right, which is to deal justly with sin, as any good judge must, but also be the justifier, be the one who proclaims uh, sinners just or righteous in his sight, despite their sin, because their sin has been dealt with Lawfully, So uh, there's a sense in which <clears throat> the need for guilt to be dealt with in the establishment of this kingdom points us forward to the coming of Christ and the establishing of the kingdom of God through Jesus. And thankfully there, our guilt is dealt with uh, in a different way, a, a similar way. Death is still at the center of it, but it's not the death of the one whose guilt needs to be dealt with. It's the death of the sinless one in order to take away the guilt of the guilty so that we might be righteous in God's sight and be able to participate in the kingdom that he has established through his son, which is good news. That's why we call it the gospel. So, um, that's what happened to Joab. Now, the other guy that uh, Saul, that Solomon was told to deal with by his father David is a guy named Shimei. Now, Shimei's story is this. When David, we talked about this before, when David was fleeing from Absalom, who had tried to take the throne from his father uh, even long before Adonijah had made a play for the throne in David's old age, much earlier Ad- um, Absalom had tried to take the throne from his father David. And as... David was fleeing from Jerusalem. This man, Shimei, was cursing David. And uh, David didn't strike him down at the time, uh, but he says to Solomon, you know, you need to do something about this guy. Um, He says back in verse 8, There is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So what's Solomon going to do with this guy who cursed his father, David? Well, look at verse 36. It says, Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, 
so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. So Solomon allows Shimei to live, but requires him to live in Jerusalem and does not allow him to leave. Shimei agrees with that plan, says it's a good plan, and that he will go along with the plan. Alright, but he doesn't go along with the plan. Verse 39, But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Akish, son of Ma'akah, king of Gath. And when it was told to Shimei, Behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Akish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. Now, we already know what's going to happen. Now, we know what Shimei agreed to. We know what Solomon warned him about, required him to do, and Shimei has clearly broken the agreement between he and Solomon. So verse 41 says, And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever you shall die? And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the king summons Shimei, calls him to account, reminds him of what he had agreed to, and uh, the fact that he had violated that agreement also reminds him of the real issue behind all of this, which is the way that he treated David uh, back when David was fleeing from uh, Absalom. And so he has Shimei executed. He has Shimei put to death for violating his agreement. Um, what are we to make about? What are we to make of this? Well, um, Shimei had cursed David. Uh, Shimei was given a second chance, even a third chance. Um, he was allowed to live in Jerusalem. He clearly violated the terms. Um, he brought this in, in a real sense on his own head. Um, but there's also something that we can learn from this, um, and that's this. Shimei made an agreement with Solomon. Right? I'll live in Jerusalem. I won't leave. I understand if I leave, you'll kill me. Um, and then three years later, when his servants ran away, which probably cost him money and maybe prestige or respect or whatever that he was uh, likely to lose as a result, uh, his promise seemed to melt away. Um, and that's not unique to Shimei, right? Commitments that we make in a moment of pressure right, um, can seem less important or less vital after the pressure has passed or after time has passed. And then when some kind of tempting situation comes in that would tempt us to break that commitment that we made, it's very easily easy to rationalize and justify breaking that promise that we made. But if we make a legitimate commitment or promise, especially one that involves life and death, it is made precisely for the moment of temptation to protect us from folly, 
Right, so when Shimei agreed to abide by Solomon's decision that he had to stay in Jerusalem, uh, it, that promise was made not for the days when Shimei just needed to walk up the street to the market and uh, buy something for his meal for that day. It was made for the moment when Shimei would be tempted to run, when Shimei would be tempted to go uh, chase down his servants, when Shimei would be tempted to do something ex- you know extreme like that. And in that moment, Shimei should have said, I can get my servants back and probably die, or I can let my servants go and live. We don't know what he thought. We don't know how he rationalized or if he forgot or what was going on in Shimei's head. But we do know what often happens to us, right? That we are faced with a temptation to break a promise that we've made, maybe a uh, a promise to a friend, maybe uh, our wedding vows, right? It could be any number of things. Those promises are made so that when something tempting comes, we have the strength to say no to it, right? We, that's what the vows are for, the promises are for, to remind us of what we are supposed to be doing. Um, and it's a good reminder that sometimes when we break those vows, the consequences can be extremely high. So uh, Shimei serves as a, as a warning in that sense. And then finally, uh, the end of verse 46 says, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This is the point of the whole chapter. The kingdom has passed from David to Solomon. That's always a sort of shaky time. There are different people trying to make plays for the kingdom, trying to position themselves, etc. There are uh, old old problems that need to be addressed so they don't drag down uh, the new king uh, as the kingdom passes into the hands of another. And all of chapter 2 has been about dealing with that and making sure that the kingdom is established in accordance with God's promise. That's why Solomon, or it says there in verse 45, Solomon says, but King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. That again goes back to that promise in 2 Samuel 7 that God was going to establish his kingdom, David's kingdom, uh, through one of his sons who would reign on his throne forever. Solomon's a partial fulfillment of that. Of course, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, uh, great David's greater son, who even now is seated on David's throne in the heavenly places. And so uh, the kingdom that God promised to David is established through justice, like uh, the execution of uh, Solomon, uh, excuse me, not Solomon, of Joab. It's established through justice and the punishment of the wicked, like Shimei as well. Um, and if that sounds wrong or weird or unchristian or something, uh, remember two things. One, we talked about before that with the coming of Christ, uh, it is uh, now the case that the kingdom of God is not an earthly political reality as it was at least in some sense in the time of David and Solomon in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In the Old Testament, God was working through an earthly political kingdom there in the nation of Israel. Uh, But now with the coming of Christ, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He told Peter to put away his sword, all the rest. So the church 
does not wield a sword in the world. It does not put to death its enemies. Uh, our calling is to love our enemies and uh, to be faithful to Jesus unto our own death, not bringing about the death of others. But it's also true that when Jesus comes to uh, finally establish his kingdom fully and forever, uh, he's already inaugurated it, he's already got it started, but when he comes back and sets it up fully and finally and forever, the same kinds of things are going to happen. If you read the book of Revelation, it's very clear that part of the establishment of a kingdom of joy and righteousness and peace is also the punishment and judgment and exile of the wicked, of all those who have opposed the king and opposed his kingdom and refused to repent and refused to turn and refused to trust in him and refused to have their sin dealt with through uh, the blood of the Savior, Jesus, who died on the cross in the place of sinners, those who refuse that option, they will be judged, they will be punished, they will be sentenced to what the Bible calls the second death. So, uh, in another sense, this is, <clears throat> this is how God works. Uh, this is what God does, and not just what happened in the past, but in a slightly different way, will happen again in the future. Again, not at the hands of the church, right, but at the hands of God himself when he comes both to judge his enemies and to save those who have patiently waited for him. And though we don't want anybody to be judged or punished, we know that God's judgment is always righteous. We, we preach the gospel now so that people will repent and not experience that judgment. And we long for the day when Jesus will come and his kingdom will be established and we will get to dwell in him in a place of righteousness and joy and peace forever. And to that we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.